Awesome. We're going to continue in our series. We started last week about uh, connecting with God, and this is probably most of our desire, and most, most, well, at least part of the reason why we're here today, is not only to connect with each other, but to hopefully have some sort of experience with the God of this universe, and that's what we're talking about. And uh, there's a sense that we are actually already very connected with, with God. Uh, the Bible actually talks about our relationship in the terms, a uh, very different, a lot of different terms, but one of those terms is, is being a friend of God. And if you consider a friend, uh, two friends, you wouldn't see that relationship as like, you know, super spread out and, and very distant. This, this actually, we have a close friendship with God. John 15 says, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. And Romans 5.11 says, Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. And so through Jesus, we have this connection with God that is in one sense labeled as being a friend of God. Which is pretty cool. I mean, if you thought about, I don't know who your superhero is, but I don't know, let's say it's like Bono or something. I don't know who it is. But if you said, you know, I'm a friend of your superhero, or a friend of, of Bono, I mean, you'd be like, this is amazing. But the scriptures talks about being a friend with God. Uh, but that connection actually is spoken more often, often in even a deeper sense. And that is this, this idea of being children of God. Uh, Romans 8 says, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. We now call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Or as Romans 5, 1 says, we are dearly loved children. So we're not like his hated children or his miserable children or his children that he never, never wants to see. We are his dearly loved children. We are friends with God. And so there's this idea that, we, that whether we know it or not, through Jesus, we are absolutely connected. And we spoke last week that there's a deeper reality that uh, we are so connected that God actually lives in us, that he is inside of us. And we're so interconnected with the triune God that in John 14, Jesus says, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. It's like a blender. <laughs> you know, Jesus is in the Father, and we're in Jesus, and yet we're in the Father and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so there's part of this idea where we're longing to connect with God is this reality that we already are connected with God. And part of this journey sometimes is just trying to recognize and to realize what we already have in Jesus. As it says, we are seated with him right now in the heavenly realms. But we know the issue, and we talked a little bit about this last week, is that is the idea of what is sometimes known as the hiddenness of God. That if I want to connect with my own kids or with a friend, I can sit down and have coffee, I can look them in the eye, I can hear them with my ears, I, uh, they can hear me, I can give them a hug, and there's this, this physicality, this, this naturality of, of, a, of a physical relationship. But when it comes to God, and if I want to sit down with God, I don't see Him. If I don't sit down, if I want to sit down and hear God, I don't just hear Him with my natural ears the way I hear you. And, and, and it's just this weird thing of trying to relate and connect to God in a totally different way than we connect with each other. It's connecting in the spirit. And so uh, there is this, this balance or this, this kind of two issues here of that we are already connected, yet sometimes we, we don't feel that connection as we should because it's very different than what we, we recognize in this real world. And, but despite of that, all throughout 
history, people have had these experiences with God. They've been able to connect with God and they, they say, you know, I felt God or, you know, God moved or God did this or, you know, I heard God speak or there's these connections with God that we see that many of you have and uh, we hear throughout church history. So we're, we're just talking about how folks have connected with God. And last week we looked at this idea of sacred pathways. And that is that they've done studies and they realize that not every person connects with God best in the same way way. That all of us here will connect with God in different ways, and they will look different from each other. And sometimes we, we always want to make people worship God the same way we do, but the reality is people worship God differently. And so we looked last week at nine different ways that people best connect with God, and you can find this in, in Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Pathways. But there's the naturalist who connects with God best when they are outdoors, there's the, the sensate who connects with God best when their five senses are engaged. So those folks would have maybe just really enjoyed communion because there's more sense, senses going on. Uh, there's the traditionalists who connect with God best through ritual and symbol, things like Advent and, and the church calendar and Lent and those kind of things. There's the aesthetics, uh, connect with God best in solitude and simplicity. There's the activists who connect with God best through creating positive change, social justice, those kinds of things. There's the caregivers who connect with God best when they are loving others. And there's the enthusiasts who connect with God best through mystery and celebration. There's the, the contemplatives who connect with God best through reflection and quiet or adoration. And finally, there was the, the intellectuals who connect with God best when the, the mind is engaged. And we looked at those in more detail last week. And I think there's still a little... Uh, sacred pathways test at the back that you can pick up if you want to try to figure out what you are. But it's really helpful to realize that all of us in this room are going to connect with God best in different ways. And, and we try to have different things going on and we give freedom to worship in different ways because not all of you will connect with God best in the same way. Now I want to talk specifically about connecting with God through scripture today. I want to start there and um, partly to realize that that often when people talk about connecting with God today in the modern world, that a lot of folks are saying, if you want to connect with God, they will say, you know, the only way or at least the best way is to open your Bible, maybe to sit down on your table and read the Bible. Uh, but the reality is, I mean, it's a great way to connect with God, but the reality is that kind of connecting with God is very new when it comes to church history. That for most of church history, people didn't have a Bible. For most of church history, most people couldn't read a Bible, even if they had a Bible. Um, and so I just want to talk about that today. I want to talk about ways you can connect with God through Scripture. But I also want to, us to realize what a privilege it is to have a Bible. But at the same hand, when you realize that not all Christians had a Bible throughout church history, you also realize, well, if most of church history people didn't have their own Bibles, then there's got to be a lot of other ways to connect with God other than reading the Bible. And so there's kind of multi-points multi to this message today. But let, but let me just talk about the privilege of having a Bible, or the uniqueness of this, or the, the newness of this. Because if you tell someone that the best way to connect with God is for you to sit down and read your own Bible, and maybe have a little prayer, that that is, a, is actually coming from a quite a privileged position. Uh, because people didn't have a Bible for most of church history. A lot of times they would only hear it in church, because only churches had manuscripts. There are times in history where the, it was actually illegal for normal people to read the Bible. But we see that Jesus died about 30, 
33 AD, depending on what scholars you're listening to. Some push it up to 36 AD. Um, they had the Old Testament, of course. That was kind of their Bible at the time, but they didn't have any New Testament. And we talk about being New Covenant Christians or New Testament Christians. After Jesus died, they didn't have that. In fact, it took another 20 years after Jesus' death before the first uh, New Testament books were even begun to be written. And from about 20 years after Jesus' death to about 60 years after death, that's when the, the New Testament was written. But these were mostly letters that were sent out to different churches. So there were still, you know, for the first couple hundred years of church history, nobody had a New Testament. Uh, some churches might have some letters. Some churches might have more letters, depending on, because they had to hand copy them. And they would pass them around and they would copy another letter. And so nobody had a personal Bible in those days. Uh, you could show up at church and hear scripture read. You'd hear probably a lot of the Old Testament read, a lot of the Psalms read. You might hear some of the New Testament letters being read. Uh, the New Testament wasn't actually officially canonized until uh, almost, almost 450 years after Jesus died. In about 200 AD, most of it was canonized, but there's still some debate about what books were in and out. But, but again, there was no such thing as a personal Bible in those days. Uh, I mean, how'd they worship God? Well, obviously, there's a lot of ways we can connect with God other than personally reading the Scripture. They would have been very used to uh, hearing Scripture in church because, again, it was only the churches that had various manu manuscripts. But for a long time, actually, the church began to prohibit any person in the laity to actually read the Bible. And it was very illegal to have the Bible in your own language, like the decree of the Council of, sounds like turtle, but Toulouse or something, I don't know. Uh, about 1200 AD, this is what this council said. We prohibit also that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. But we, mostly strict, uh, but we most strictly forbid they're having in, any translation of these books. I mean, imagine <laughs> you heard from your, your church leader, you're not allowed to have a Bible. We prohibit you from reading the Bible. That's the way it was in sort of the mainstream Christianity of those days. Now, there were groups that had letters and tried to hide them, and, uh, but for sort of mainstream, it was illegal for you to even have, so how do these Christians connect with God? Was it just like we couldn't connect with God because we didn't have a Bible? Again, they would hear portions read in church, but in ter terms of daily walking with God, uh, they didn't have a scripture. The first Bible actually ever printed was shortly after the print printing press. So we're talking 1,500 years after Jesus died. Uh, still, normal church people didn't have a Bible. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a long time. That's as, like, as far ahead as the year 3,500. <laughs> it is from today. Uh, the first I uh, just to know how illegal it was, I mean, William Tyndale in 1536 was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. I mean, the Bible was in Latin, that was kind of the official, you know, language of the Bible, uh, but most people spoke other languages, it wasn't even allowed. So even if you could get a hands on, your hands on the Bible, it wouldn't be an English Bible. And so slowly over time, these English Bibles began to be copied, but it was a very slow process, a Bible was very, very, very expensive. There's no way like a normal person could afford a Bible in this time period. 1539 was the first Bible printed for sort of public use. So again, we're talking 1,500 years after Jesus died was the first Bible that was actually, hey, you could actually go and get one as a normal person. If you were very, very rich, you could buy one. In 1609 and then later 1611, of course, was the, when the famous King James Bible came out. 
And uh, notice that these Bibles all had 80 books in them. Ours only have 66 books in them. Again, Bibles all up to this point had, had more books than we do because this would be known as what the, the Protestants call the Apocrypha or the rest of the church, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox call the Deuterocanonical books. Um, and uh, they're not found in any Protestant Bible. But if you go by like a Catholic Bible or an Eastern Orthodox Bible, you'll find another section Uh, depending on what tradition you're from, they may have like 12 to 16 other books in there, including another psalm, Psalm 151 in there. And uh, and, and so these traditions call these like sort of extra-canical, that they would see them as as very important, maybe even kind of inspired, but they're kind of an extra-canon. Protestants, like our tradition, sees these books as not inspired. Um, But for most of church history, they were actually in the Bible. And not necessarily seen as like authoritative, but they were like very good to read and very helpful because a lot of history. And if you haven't read these ever as a Christian, you should read them. They have a, a big tradition in, in, in church history because they were in our Bibles pretty much till almost 1900 when they were sort of officially removed from the King James Version. Some other Protestant Bibles had them removed before that. And so we just look at that. Most of church history people didn't have a personal Bible. And even if you could have one, most people couldn't actually even read it. I mean, if you look at the, the, the world literacy rate, in the 1800s, only 12% of people could actually read if you had a Bible. 1850s, only 17%. 1900, you know, 21%. So again, this, this idea of the only way to connect with God is to sit down on your table and read your own Bible is very modern. And it's a, it's a huge privilege we actually have that we, we can actually read and that we actually have the scriptures and not only have the scriptures but we have the scriptures in a lot of different translations and a lot of different scholars that are working on it It is a very privileged thing to actually have a bible even in today's world uh, according to Wycliffe translators one in five people are still waiting for the bible to be translated into their own language in today's world There are over 7,000 languages in the world. Only 700 have actually a full Bible in their language. More have the the New Testament. But still, uh, if this is like reading your own personal Bible, if that's the only way to connect with God, then most Christians throughout church history, a lot of Christians today, they can't connect with God. But obviously that's not true. The Bible is a beautiful way to connect with God. And I use it to connect with God, but it's not the only way. There, There are a lot of other ways we can connect with God. And we're going to be talking about some of those things in this, in this series. Uh, the Bible is, is kind of like a menu. It's not the main meal. And sometimes people, you know, seem to almost worship this book more than they worship God. You know, I've heard people say, you know, when you open the Bible, God opens his mouth. When you close the Bible, he closes your mouth. He closes his mouth. In other words, you, don't, you can't hear God other than the scriptures. Well, the Bible is perhaps the best place we can hear God's voice, but he speaks to us. Obviously, even if we don't have a Bible, I mean, does that mean God never talked to most people throughout church history because they didn't have a scripture? Uh, no, uh, God, God speaks today. I mean, the Bible tells us who Jesus is, therefore we know what God is like. It, it, it is helpful for sure, like it, it guides our theology, but it's not the main meal. The main meal is Jesus. Uh, we fix our eyes on him. Uh, the Bible points us to that Jesus, and then when we get Jesus, we're like, ah, oh, this is what I have been waiting for. In fact, Jesus is the, the, the Word of God. In Revelation 19, it says, His name is the Word of God. Or in John chapter 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with Him, and the Word was God, 
and the word became human and made his home among us. That the true word of God is Jesus. And this word of God points us to the true word of God, which is Jesus. And so when it comes to connecting with God, I mean, the first thing, when you're using this book, make sure this is not an end in itself. That this book leads you to Jesus. And sometimes we can get stuck in a tradition where, you know, it's all just about reading my chapter, or reading my, you know, going through the Bible in a year, I got to read my three chapters, and you can read this without actually connecting with Jesus. And so you always want to be using this as a means to connect with Jesus. And, and there's a saying out there that, that, you know, that Christians are people of the book. But you know that that phrase, people of the book, actually comes from the Koran? It comes from the Koran. It says, Muslims describe, describing Christians and Jews, they describe them as people of the book. We're not people of the book, we're people of a person. And that is Jesus. And we use this book, absolutely. We read this book. We study this book. I mean, I got a, a master's in biblical studies. I mean, I love studying this book. But it's not an end in itself. We, we are moving towards focusing on Jesus. Now, uh, how do we use the Bible to connect with God? Let me just finish with a few little things here. And then I'll open up to see what you guys think about connecting with God through the Bible. The first thing is, if you have it and you're able to read, just read it. And it's no good if it's sitting on the shelf. Uh, actually read the Bible. And I suggest if you never read it to start in the New Testament, read through the New Testament a few times, and then maybe you can venture into the Old Testament, but don't start in like the book of Exodus. Because in my opinion, the most boring part of the Bible is the last half of the book of Exodus. Have you ever gone through there? Because it's just like, why are you repeating the same thing three times? I've already read this. And uh, don't start there. Start in the, in the New Testament. And if you are reading the Bible, you can try things like speeding up, like reading more in one sitting, or try slow down, read less in one sitting. Uh, try different ways of reading the Bible. You might want to try a different translation. Uh, if you've only read one translation in your entire life, I'd highly encourage you to pick up something new, because often when you pick up a different translation, you will come across things the odd time that are like, oh, that's really different. Now, most of the translations are all going to be the same, but there can be some surprising differences in different translations in different portions, which can, can spur interest. It can go like, oh, I'm really curious about that and cause you to like, want to study it. As Gordon Fee and Mark Strauss in their book, How to Choose a Translation, they say, if the goal of translations is to reproduce the meaning of the text, then it follows that all translations involve interpretation. And every translation you get, there's interpretation. The, the, the translators have to go from Greek and Hebrew and sometimes they don't even know for sure what certain words mean, so they have to translate it into English, and that is why you find different Bibles. You'll find different groups out there have different Bibles. So the, like the Reformed folks have a certain Bible they use because it often supports maybe their complementarianism more than the other evangelicals who, who are more egalitarian have their Bible because it supports more egalitarian views. And then there's the, the Catholic Bibles and then there's like the NRSV that the, the, the mainline churches use because they all are interpreted a little bit different depending on the scholars behind it, and depending on what denomination they're writing the Bible for. So it can be really interesting to actually pick up a different translation. And, uh, and sometimes, I mean, again, this is, this is rare, but there are places where it's just, they're radically different. Again, this is not every page. There might be maybe once every book or something, but I mean, even like a Genesis 3.16, you look at the translation, they're radically different. Like the NIV says, your desire will be for your husband. Or the ESV, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, which is kind of the exact opposite. Or the NRSV, your desire shall be for your husband. 
uh, or New Living Translate, your desire, you will desire to control your husband. Or you will desire your husband or you'll want to please your husband. I mean, radically different translations. Again, this is not everywhere, but a few, there's these few places in the Bible where just, this is really different because sometimes it's hard to know what that Hebrew word means. Again, there's different translation philosophies. There's different Bibles written for different groups of Christians out there. Uh, it can be really interesting just to pick up a different, and it can refresh things. Because it can challenge some of your ideas. It can cause you like, I really want to study that and, and figure that out. If you're a mind type, um, this can be interesting to explore. Uh, maybe if you've read some more word-for-word translations that are, uh, sometimes it can be fun just to explore like a paraphrase, which are written more in poetic languages. Again, maybe not the best uh, Bibles to do deep study of uh, you know, the original languages in or something like that, but they're fun to read. Like the message can be fun to read, can be refreshing. The Passion, Passion Translation is a newer one that can be kind of fun to read and refreshing. They're very poetic and written in sort of more modern ways. So try a different translation. Another thing you do is to pray the scripture. Instead of just reading the scripture, to pray the scripture. Especially if you're someone who, maybe like me, if you sit down to pray, all of a sudden you're thinking about lunch, and and you try to pray, and then you're thinking about, oh, I got to do that later. I mean, to pray the scripture can help you focus in on a prayer time. I mean, you can take a verse like this, clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and you can just pray through that. God, I want to be more kind. Would you you help me be more kind? God, would you develop humility in me and, and use it as a prayer? The Psalms are beautiful for this because the Psalms are filled with this vast array of emotions. And the Psalms, when, when they're, you know, uh, talking about the struggle of life and the difficulty of life, you can pray that and actually be honest with what's inside. And, and Jesus actually quotes the Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. He spent a lot of time in the Psalms and he probably used them as he sang them and probably prayed through them. Praying scripture can be a beautiful way to use this book. Uh, you can meditate on scripture. Again, you can take a verse like this. And you could get out your journal and you could say, God, how am I doing when it comes to mercy? How am I doing when it comes to patience? God, would you, and just kind of meditate on that. Or maybe you want to mull that over. You can do Electo Divina, which we do here sometimes, where you take a passage of scripture and you ask questions about it. Uh, we do this here maybe once a month or so, and we'll read a passage and then you could ask something like, what word or phrase sticks out to you? And how does that word or phrase speak into your life today? Or is God asking you to do, so, to do or to become something? Uh, just a way that, Electro uh, Divinus, a uh, way that throughout church history, people used to meditate on, on Scripture. You can listen to the Scriptures, like an audio book. You can go to a uh, Bible site like Bible Gateway. You can always just listen to the Bible. And sometimes, listening to the Bible brings out different things than when reading the Bible. And if you're not big on reading, I mean... Most of the New Testament books you can actually read through in 20 minutes or less. And so when you're listening to it, I mean, you can get through a whole book of the Bible while you make your breakfast or you're sitting on the can or whatever you're doing. I mean, you, you can get a lot done or you're driving to work. I mean, to listen to the Bible can be super helpful. You can get a lot of scripture in by just listening to the scriptures. Uh, you can read the Bible out loud. And sometimes when you're reading it out loud, again, it can do different things in it. Um, you can read entire books in one sitting. Again, again, a lot of the New Testament books are short. I mean, Gospel of Mark, I think, is like an hour and 15. Most of the books in the New Testament are like 15 to 20 minutes. And just to read through, because sometimes when you only read a couple of verses, 
you miss the whole context of the story. And, uh, and I would highly suggest as well that if you have a Bible, a lot of Bibles have little notes like who the letter was written to and the context because the context of those letters is really important. Like when you understand that the book of Romans was not written for us yesterday, it was written to the Jews and the uh, Jewish people and the, the Gentiles who were fighting over oh, oh, with each other. That's why the book was written, to help them try to get along and to figure that out. That, that's really helpful when you read the book. Uh, so try to read an entire book in one sitting. You can read, uh, there's a lot of cool Bible plans out there. Read the Bible in a year. There's like chronological Bible plans that take you in chronological order. There's, you know, I mean, there's probably hundreds of Bible plans. You can find those on Bible Gateway too, and they can be helpful, especially if you're, you know, more uh, OCD and you like to check your thing off every day, or you just like to be very consistent in your devotions. That can be helpful because it gives you a little bit of a goal for each day. Uh, another way, uh, sometimes known as Ignatian contemplation, uh, Ignatius was a church father, and, uh, and they used their imagination a lot to read the Bible. Again, because they didn't have personal Bibles, it would be maybe read in their churches, so it allowed them to listen. And, and they, they had this practice where they would try to imagine a scene. And so you take a scene like Matthew 19, where it says, you know, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus, so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the uh, the parents were bothering him. But Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads and blessed them before he left. And you could take a scene and just begin to imagine in your mind that you come upon the scene with Jesus and there he is with his disciples and there's you know, his other followers and the women around him and, and then there's these parents with these kids and, and they're like, we want Jesus to bless our kids. And so they start bringing the kids up and the disciples get all angry and say, don't, don't mess with Jesus. And you can kind of like, what's going on in my heart when I see this? I mean, I'm sure I'm rooting for those parents and then what is Jesus going to do? And then Jesus comes up and he blesses them and it can be kind of fun to sit there and, and make this whole movie scene and that can be your time of devotion. And then you start saying what, you know, who do... I think I am in that scene. Would I be more like the disciples trying to push the parents away? Would I be those parents trying to get my kids to Jesus? What does this mean to my life? And, and to actually use your imagination in your devotional time as you read scripture. This is a fun thing to do with kids. Get your kids more involved and you can create the scene and you know, make a story of it and imagine your kids are in there and you can ask them questions and, and it gets them engaged with scripture using the imagination. And so some of the ways you can engage with, with scripture. 